You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, I'm back here with Emily. We're doing our uh, continuing our look at judges. We left off last time halfway through Deborah. We didn't even get halfway. <laughs> um, less than halfway through the story of Deborah. Um, we kind of got a little far afield, but I felt like everything we said needed to be said. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, that's the other oddities of the part. Of yeah, the show. <laughs> we just went everywhere. So um, everything from uh, the four ponies of the apocalypse. Um, to proper exegesis, proper ex, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, what is a prophet? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we we spent a lot of time. Basically, we have introduced the person Deborah, and that is all we've done, pretty much. But I mean, she deserves it. She's she's pretty amazing. And so, as we established in the last episode, you know, she she is a prophet. She's a judge, and and a judge in this context is a governing ruler. So she is not, uh, like we said, not offering grandmotherly advice. She is governing. Mm-hmm. The fact that there's no real attention called to the fact that she's a woman seems to suggest that there may have been precedence for this mm-hmm. and that, you know, the people of Israel weren't particularly surprised that they're talking to a woman. She's not at Bethel or Shiloh. She's not in the holy places. So there's some reason that she has removed herself from the traditional religious sphere. And it's probably, as we progress, we're going to find out that there's so much corruption mm-hmm. within even those who are still worshiping. They're, they're keeping the forms of worship, mm-hmm. but they really don't know what it means to worship Yahweh, this God of Israel. Well, they're keeping some of the forms of worship, but I mean, we actually, um, it, and this is something that you and I have talked, uh, talked about off mic, is that uh, Samuel is, in the, in the Jewish Bible, goes right after Judges. Correct. So... Uh, they're they're meant to lead one right into another, mm-hmm. um, because when we see Hannah, a lot of times, of course, you know, again, teaching the stories in isolation. Right. Uh, anytime I've heard the story of Hannah in in Sunday school, it was just Hannah just really wanted to have a kid. Yeah, exactly. And, Feel sorry for her. She's a poor, broken woman. Yeah. And, well, and, and and she, I think she, there was some brokenness in there that we mm-hmm. can't overlook. Right. But you also, uh, as you mentioned. It's supposed to pick up at the end of this when Hannah goes to the temple and she sees the corruption that's going on all around yes. her. And that's when she starts to pray for a son, not just a son for herself, but a son who can be the deliverer and who can get Israel out of the mess they're in. Precisely, because it is a huge mess. And when you do read it from that connection from the last part of Judges, which is so horrific, so troubling that I, I have talked to so many Christians who have no idea this is part of our Bible. Yeah, are we talking about the Levite and the yes, concubine? Yes, Levite and the concubine. Yeah, that, that story is, I mean, I'll, I'll say it, I say it a, a few times in this series, that story <laughs> is is out there as well. It's, it's messed up, and uh, it's the more you know about the background, the more messed up it becomes, but we don't want to get too far ahead. But just to illustrate ex- exactly what you're saying, that this time period is... Nothing's going right. Mm-hmm. Nobody seems to understand what the real purposes of God's plan are and how to engage with them. We have these these judges. None of them are perfect. They get worse and worse and worse as we continue. This is downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Deborah and Othniel um, are really the only two that there's not something significantly wrong with. The only thing we can say negative about Deborah is she's a woman. And mm-hmm. then we have to ask, is this Why? really a negative? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, we had basically gotten to verse six and seven, and we're in chapter four of Judges, uh, verses six and seven. This is where we're going to pick up. Uh, Deborah has uh, been introduced. We know her position and her station within the culture. And now she's going to commission Barak. And at first, this seems like he's just next door. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, if you look at the, the places, at Kedesh Naphtali, that's 17 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Deborah is between Bethel and Ramah. She's somewhere around the Jerusalem area, not precisely Jerusalem, but if you're looking on a map, this is going to help you locate it. 
this ex- um, this really emphasizes the extent of her influence. She is not just a local tribal ruler. She is ruling all of Israel at this point. Mm-hmm. And this is a theme that's even going to be expressed more thoroughly when we do get to the song. So Barak, when he appears, the first thing you need to know is that his name means lightning. And this is important because who controls the lightning in Canaan? We're looking at Baal. We're looking at this fertility god. Mm-hmm. And so now... According to the people. According <laughs> to the people. And so now lightning is going to do the bidding of Yahweh. And it's a nice little vignette. A little play on words. It, it is. It is. And we're going to see how this even extends further into the story. Um, Deborah, when she calls him, she lays out this battle plan. She says, you're going to take these people, you're going to go here, and then God's going to do his part. Now, this is very much in keeping with what Samuel does with Saul and David, and he's guiding them. So once again, we have that connection. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where the story starts to get controversial, because in verses 8 and 9, Barak makes this famous statement, I will go, but only if you go with me. And This has led people to say that Barak is a weak man. He's hiding behind a woman's skirt. Uh, You know, this is really seen as an indictment against him. Uh, But I think when we read it that way, we're we're bringing our own bias to the text. And so I'm going to offer a different way of reading this that I think is more respectful. Okay. So more generous. First of all, Deborah agrees to go. Mm-hmm. There's no negotiation. There's no excuses. She doesn't even argue like Moses does at the burning bush. She just says, sure, we'll, we'll do it. And now there's going to be consequences. And the consequence is that Sisera is going to be delivered into the hands of the woman. I think that's how we've been taught the, the, the consequences idea. Mm-hmm. There might be something different going on here. And we're going to talk about, um, what the difference might be. So forget that Deborah's a woman for a moment and think about what you would know as an Israelite about successful battle. And to do that, you've got to go back in time. You've got to go back to Exodus. Look at Exodus 17 in particular. Moses is on the mountaintop. They're fighting. As long as his arms remain upright, they win. Mm -hmm. Whenever his arms start to fall, then the Israelites start to get pushed back. Right. This is a pivotal battle for the nation of Israel. And they recognize that their success or their demise depends on one thing, and that's the presence of God. And Mm -hmm. the presence of God is represented by the presence of his prophet. Interesting. Okay. So then if you fast forward to Numbers 15.44, this is after the spies report, and they realize, hey, they've made a mistake that they really should be willing to fight this battle. They really should be okay with going in against the giants. Mm -hmm. And Moses says, no, you've, you've missed the opportunity. Yeah. That ship has sailed. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do this. And they go out anyway and they get their butts kicked. I mean, that's just the pure and simple truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in numbers 1544, it says that they persist Although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord or Moses departed from camp, they failed because Moses and the Ark or Or, Moses or the Ark was not with them. Yeah, that makes sense. So every successful battle up to this time is due to the Lord being with them through his representative. And the representative could be a person with Moses or Joshua, or it can be the Ark of the Covenant. And we also see this. with the judges, but we see it in first Samuel four, three, this is still part of their mindset. And this is when they go out against the Philistines. And it's one of your favorite stories, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the first time they go out, they get beaten, they come back and they get the Ark of the Covenant. They take it back out to battle. It gets uh, captured and the Philistines <laughs> take it back to the, the temple of Dagon. But the verse uh, four, three, this is first Samuel four, three says, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may be among us, 
and save us from the power of our enemies. The people still understand that victory is determined by the presence of the Lord. So is Barak actually hiding behind the skirts of a woman, or is he doing what has been shown to work throughout the history of Israel mm-hmm. up to this point? No, that would, that would make sense. It, it, it really does. And the, well, and, and even, even so, could it even be that, because she's, she even says, nevertheless, mm-hmm. so is it like, even though you're going to do the right thing here, yeah, you're, you're still not going to get the victory. It, you're still not going to get the victory. And, and is this a problem for Barack? Uh, that's another thing we have to ask. And that's, I, I think there's evidence that it's not. The uh, fact that he still goes. He still goes. And if we jump ahead to chapter five, it's the very first verse is in Deborah and Barak sang. If you're ashamed and humiliated by a situation, do you sing in celebration over it? Right. And so there's evidence that Barak, he's not worried about where the, the credit goes. He's interested in winning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and also real quick, Exodus 33, after the golden calf and, and Moses intercedes for the people. You know, he even says, I mean, and this is Moses, you know, God says, you go on without me. I'm going to hang back here. Okay, it's really getting on my nerves. It's good for me. It's good for you. <laughs> and so, and Moses says, you know, basically, what's the point? Yeah. If the presence of the Lord isn't with us, it's not worth it. Right. Well, and, and, and that kind of echoes, again, the whole, <laughs> the whole bit about our conversation with Luke. Did God know what he was doing when he wrote the Bible? Yeah. And if, if he didn't, then what's the point? <laughs> and, and, and do we blame people um, for trusting established patterns within Scripture? And this is a little sidebar. This is one of my things with um, the first miracle with Jesus turns water into wine. You know, there's all this talk about how the Pharisees were horrible people and they had all these rules and what have you. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy had all the water there for the purification so that people could actually partake in the, the feast, the wedding feast, without being unclean. And so, you know, there would have been no water for the wine if there hadn't been obedience. Right. And he was doing the last thing God had told him to do, what he knew he was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so this, I really see this, and again, this might be my bias. I. I see this as Barack going, this is what we do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is what we do. And I want God with me because I know I can't do it on my own. Yeah. No, I I can see that reading. That would make sense to me. Well, and I I think when we read it any other way, um, we're having to downplay, like I said, his, his participation in the song. We're having to downplay the fact that Barack, um, he is celebrated. In, in Hebrews, in the, in the um, Hebrews 11, the halls of faith, the heroes of faith, mm-hmm. he, he's the one mentioned there. And so he celebrated as being faithful in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament. And why would he be included if he had totally messed this up? And again, scripture has to interpret scripture. Now, when she says that, um, that Cicero is going to be given into the hands of a woman, a lot of times we see this as the consequence argument that, um, oh, look, you're going to be so ashamed because a woman's going to win. Is it really that? Or is there something else going here? I, I'm going to lead towards the latter because it was very typical that if you offer a prophetic word, the way you validated your prophetic word was a sign. Mm-hmm. And if we go back and we read, um, Judges 6 with Gideon, this lines up point by point. Sure. And so you begin to see that there is this idea that a true prophet offers a sign. Um, And the sign is to show that she is a true prophet and that the victory was not the result of Barak's expert war, you know, machine. Yeah. Yeah. This is even due to her presence. This is due to God's intervention. Right. And so the idea that she would offer something that was so absurd as a woman defeating this mighty general, right? that she must really be a true prophet of God. And, you know, Gideon does this. We do not, this is what cracks me up. We do not fault Gideon for seeking a sign. We, we don't act like he was a horrible person for saying, hey, God, I need to know this is really you. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the things we overlook too is, yes, there's peace in the land after this. 
but was it instantaneous peace or did they have to continue to do some kind of peacekeeping measures? Mm. And do they have to be brave enough to stand up against the Canaanites even after this rather decisive victory? Right. And, you know, I think we're assuming too much about the, the Canaanites to think that they just rolled over and played dead during this time. This was not in their nature. This was not their character. Sure. So, um, also, this is in perfect keeping with Exodus 33, when, when Moses does intercede on behalf of Israel and says, I don't want to go unless you're with us. God gives him a sign. And this is when God shows Moses his glory. Mm-hmm. And so Exodus 33, Judges 6, and Judges 4 read together, they all support this view that this is a sign and this is not a consequence. And there's a huge difference between the two. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, I can see that. Yeah. So... um. But yeah, and, and Barack, he's, he's not intimidated by it. And that, that's the other thing. I, I, there's no wrangling on his part. Once he says, okay, yeah, let's, let's do this. You're going to go with me. I mean, he goes forward. There, there's no, now, wait a minute. Well, and you also have the, you know, Deborah sends for Barack. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the backstory there? Was, was this something that maybe he had consulted her about before? Like, is this the day? Is right. this the day? And she, you know, maybe he was bugging her. Maybe she knows that he's <laughs> amassing some troops and getting ready to go. And he's been going, when, when, when? And she's like, just go over there and I will send for you. you know, it, I yeah. mean, that's pure speculation. Well, and we, but have, that's but we it. don't have it. We, we don't have that information, but I'm curious about that because, you know, he's like, okay, if it's really the time and God has told you it's the time, let's go. Come on. You're you're in. You're you're with me, right? <laughs> and, and why why is it Barack that she sends for? I mean, that's a really good question that we don't have a lot of information on. Now he is from about the same area as Hazor, mm-hmm. so he's he's close geographically to Jabin. He's not close geographically to Deborah, and so the fact that he even responds to her summons mm-hmm. that tells you that she op- operates in a place of of high influence and respect. Right. So she's. I mean, this isn't just some random woman sending him a text message at 3 a.m. This is, I mean, he... That's a totally different scenario. He knows exactly who she is, and he knows what she's about. And he, there's no hesitation to come to her to get this, um, this command. Mm-hmm. So moving on into verse 11, we kind of, there's this weird little break in the story. And we have Herber, the, the Kenanite, he's introduced. And we're reminded in the text that as a Canaanite, that he's a relative of Moses' father-in-law. So he was a descendant of Jethro. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Canaanites, we know that they traveled with the children of Israel during the Exodus. We've talked about that before. We know that Caleb was a Canaanite. We know that Othniel was a Canaanite. And so we really kind of expect to see good things from Herber when he's first introduced. Mm-hmm. We, we Heber. Heber. In an R. Am I? Okay. Yeah. yeah, I am. Okay. Heber. Sorry. I was trying to figure out like, who's Herbert? Herbert. Herbert. Sorry. <laughs> so, Sorry. Yeah. You know, we throw a few extra louders. I'm taking after your youngest daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why you probably didn't catch it. Uh, but he pitched his tents. Uh, he's away from the people. Uh, he's away from the other Canaanites. He's away from the other Israelites. Um, this phrase here is kind of a foreshadowing of what a huge role the tents are going to play in, in the, what's getting ready to happen. Uh, and we have a mention of a tree again, uh, the oak of Zananim. Possibly uh, this is a, we think it might be a place of trading where the nomads kind of all gathered mm-hmm. to, to um, share their wares, um, which totally makes sense because this is, um, Herber, uh, Heber, sorry, Heber would have been, uh, as a Canaanite, he would have been a blacksmith and he would have been a craftsman. And so he would need some place to peddle his ware so that he could buy produce. He wouldn't have had his own fields, his own flocks uh, necessarily. So he would have been, you know, the, the middleman uh, the, of the, the society. Okay. So yeah. verse 12 through 16, we, we have this... Um, very short account of the battle. There, there's really no detail. The Lord routes them. We're not told how. Uh, Barak fearlessly pursues them. He tracks them down. He kills every last man. One of the things to notice in the account, Deborah doesn't actually go into battle with him. 
she stays on Mount Tabor. She she watches the battle from above. And once again, we're back with Moses, with Aaron and her standing on the mountain, watching the battle. Mm-hmm. She's placed very much in that same situation, in that same level of respect that Moses would, would have been given. And, you know, this, this was her, go- her, her job to spiritually uphold these people in battle, to encourage them. And as long as they could see her standing there, then they would have drawn courage and strength from her presence because she is the representative of God. Mm-hmm. So the, the other details we really don't have, I, we kind of have to fill in, and we're going to fill some of those in when we get to the Song of Deborah, so I'm going to wait on that. But the, the JPS translation actually says, um, in verse 15, it says, The Lord confounded Sisera and all the chariots and the entire camp by the edge of the sword before Barak. This word confounded, it's to send them into a total panic. Um, that by the time Barack gets there, they are just so out of their minds with fear that they can't operate as a cohesive unit. Um, the, the sword is taken out of Barack's hand uh, and actually put into God's hand, the, the entire, by the edge of the sword before Barack. Right. So, well, in, in this, in this uh, JPS mm-hmm. version that I've got here, it actually says they, uh, God threw them into a panic. Okay. So, so it, that, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I've got a little older translation there, and, and translations are always being updated to better reflect our modern English usage of a word. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not saying that the Bible is flawed. It's just saying that the, that language is fluid. Um, but if we read this and we begin to look at the words that are being used, and if you go back to Exodus 14 and Exodus 15, it's the same words, the same verbs that are showing up over and over again. And the two texts really talk to each other, mm-hmm. which if you just go by chapter four, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, why is crossing the Red Sea so similar to this battle with Barak? And so we have to, that's where we need chapter five to fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And so when we get there, we're going to go more into that. But again, remember, these are the only two events, the crossing the Red Sea, Barak's battle here. They're the only two events where we have a narrative account and a poetic, poetic. account. Okay. So they're connected that at way. At least back to back. At least back to back. Because yeah, we, we do have some Psalms that line up with various other places in the Bible. Correct. So they're not, but they're not back to back. Right. It's because there, there is... There are there are some there are excuse me there mm-hmm. are some psalms of creation mm-hmm. where you have the creation narrative which is actually well I mean it's a narrative but it's more poetic but then you do have some psalms that are specifically about the creation right. account and we also have some about the Exodus so yes that's a good clarification because but as far as like to have them side by side where you you can compare and contrast that's this is the only time it happens and. That's a distinction that is important, and we're going to talk about that again more when we get to the song. Um, But Sisera flees by foot, and he gets to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. For there was a peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Canaanite. That's verse 17. Okay. This is where things really start to get interesting. Well, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, it's, it, you know, it makes sense if, uh, if Heber was like a merchant or a blacksmith for him to have peace with the king that's ruling. Because if you don't have peace with the king who's ruling, you can't do business. Right. Because who's going to buy all your wares? Right. The, the most important thing that blacksmiths did at this point is to construct armor and to construct weapons. Mm-hmm. And so Heber... Um, was probably being made rich by Sisera. Sisera was probably his main client. He's sure. got 900 iron chariots. Where did he get those if it not from a blacksmith? And so... Not the chariot dealership? Yeah, it, it's... They're on the other side of town. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this word peace here, uh, this is covenantal language. The, this kind of suggests that there was a formalized treaty between mm-hmm. them. And now, when Heber decided to pitch his tents far away from the rest of the people, this is not just a, a good business decision, because you don't leave your family in the society. Right. If you leave your family, there's something else going on uh, besides just, hey, I've got a, a great job opportunity over here. There, 
there's basically the statement that I'm leaving the religion of my family behind. Why? Because when you change geographic areas, you're changing gods. Um, I'm leaving politics behind. Why? Because the political rulers were representatives of the gods. So he, he's not just saying, I don't want to live next door to my mother-in-law anymore. He's saying, I am actually going to, to take on a new identity. And so he, he is living in this land completely separate, and he's doing something that no other Canaanite has done at this point. He, he's saying, I'm not a friend to Israel. And so mm-hmm. this makes for some interesting speculation about what his wife's views are. So, and we should note that in verse 12, we find out that Sisera, um, he, he gets word that basically um, Barak has got the troops on the move. And we think maybe because there's nobody else in the story that Heber might have been the one who actually informed on um, Barak. Barak moving forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, because JL, honestly, JL, JL, however you want to say it. She knows way too much about the situation. She, her actions have to be informed actions. Sure. And so when she arrives on the scene, we really don't know what to make of her at first. It, pretend like you've never heard the story before. She comes out to meet Cicera. This sounds friendly. This sounds welcoming. Yeah. And uh, she says, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. Uh, I think Webb, so this was like a siren's call almost, you mm-hmm. know? It's... Well, I mean, it would, it would actually, I mean, it would kind of make sense if they had done business in the past. Mm-hmm. Like if they'd been doing business that, you know, we want to keep doing business. So, hey, you see that the commander of the army that you've been selling to is in trouble. Right. Then you're going to be like, hey, come in here. You hide out here. It'll be, it'll be cool. We'll wait until everyone runs by. Right. Because how does she know him? I mean, she didn't see him on Facebook. He's not in the newspaper or on the news. Right. She had to have well, known. And artist depictions at the time were a little iffy. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how does she know who he is unless she had seen him before? And the thing is, and if you notice the wording there in, the, in that verse, he's going to her tent. He is looking for her. He's not running randomly across the hills. He, he has a specific goal in mind. Mm-hmm. So the the... The relationship is firmly established to the point that he does actually think he's going to be safe. Yeah. And so she goes out to meet him. And now this is a tip off because we already know that women in the Bible who go out are problematic. Right. Uh, Leah went out with. Well, he didn't read the rest of the Bible. No, he didn't. But yeah, we're supposed to know it because <laughs> and the, the audience, the original audience was supposed to know it because they're supposed to know the Torah that Leah went out and met with Jacob and that Dina goes out at Shechem mm-hmm. and, you know, Leah is Dina's mother. So how do we view her going out? That's, is she right? Is she wrong? The, this is a huge problem uh, for a lot of the rabbinic commentators. And uh, there's actually um, a little side note. There's a book called The Holiness of Sin, which I haven't purchased. It's like a thousand long page. And it, it's interesting to me. A thousand pages long? thousand. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. I was like, I, I figured. Sorry. I just want to clarify for anyone who's not me. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, but no, this book actually talks about uh, the rabbinic argument about sin serving a greater purpose. And okay. is it okay? When is it excusable to, to sin with the idea of de- serving a greater good? Mm-hmm. And um, so what I find fascinating is the rabbis pick it up here with JL, even though we could ask the same question of Othniel. Right. We could ask the same question of Ehud. And Shamgar. A, a Shamgar. When, when is sin okay if it's in service to God? And so it, it kind of, I think it's interesting that, that they pick it up with a woman and they find more problems with a woman doing this than they do with the men when the book is so full. <laughs> well, is there, I mean, because here's the other question. I mean, you have to ask, was there, is there implications of impropriety, like sexually? Was there, yes. <laughs> is there, I mean, 
yeah, I mean, is there implications of that? Was is that is this a turn of a phrase too that mm-hmm. he goes into the tent expecting? Yeah. <laughs> how do we how do we delicate about this? He winds up being the one who gets uh, the shaft. Uh, you know, <laughs> the <tip> pick. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out like if this is actually some kind of like turning of the situation, this ironic turning of the situation, much like with uh, uh, Eglon mm-hmm. and, and 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 Ehud. You know, there's this expecting of something good, and you get stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so. well, no, and but the, no, this is this is a legitimate question because the main problem with this is number one, she does go out. Number two, women do not invite men into their tents. Um, they whenever men and women were together, it was usually outside the tents. It was in the the communal tent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This this was not acceptable behavior so she's violating propriety there's the word i'm looking for propriety uh in in extending this invitation um the other thing is the fact she did extend the invitation now he's under her protection right and we know this is a huge deal i mean go back to sodom and gomorrah whenever the angels get to to lot's house they're under his protection Mm -hmm. and now the another question i'm I'm probably going far (laughs) off the rails here Two other connections I'm curious about. Number uh-huh. one, is there a connection here between uh, her and Tamar? There probably and, is. And Judah and, and deception being a part of things. Uh, there is actually, there, there's a book written about deception in women in the Bible specifically that I'm sure explores that. Okay. Unfortunately, um, that's not been in the budget. Uh, <laughs> no, that, that's fair. I mean, and, and, and that actually, actually, it kind of brings up another question in my mind, which I, mm-hmm. I still have that other point I want to ask about. But I, I, I'm curious about this because there is, there's like this, this deception is kind of the tool that God uses women to achieve his goals. Mm-hmm. Well, how was it that what happened in the garden? The women were deceived. And oh. now, and now the tool that they were that was used to bring about the fall (laughs) is now the weapon they use to accomplish God's purposes. So I wonder if there's something in that. Oh yeah. We're going to have to return to that because (laughs) that that's actually, that's an interesting reversal right there. That the fact that, yeah, women constantly and consistently are, are using deception as as their means. I mean, and it makes sense if we're talking about a patriarchal, patriarchal society, um, women aren't given many opportunities uh, to stand up and defend themselves. Sure. So how do you get your way and how do you even get what's right for you and necessary for you mm-hmm. without putting yourself in danger or making sure that the the danger you do put yourself in has a definite payoff? And yeah. So, so, so yeah, that, but that's, <laughs> that was just something that just occurred to me. Like I said, and I'm not saying that is a definite theological statement. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm asking that question. But the other question I have is, is there a connection here with Rahab? Mm. You know, I don't know right off the bat, so I would so, have to. So let's let's table those. Let's when we get to the end of judges, we'll do have to we'll do, do, a recap. do a recap. Yeah. And, and so yeah, because I mean, there, I think that's going to be a really good thing for me to delve into. You may yeah. not see me for a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm making a note. This is a good idea. Uh, so once he, you know, she, once he's inside, he is under her protection, and it's her obligation to keep him safe. And it's her obligation to be a good hostess. And, but we have this. Well, she just messed that all up. (laughs) Didn't she? (laughs) Talk about missing the mark (laughs) or hitting the mark. (laughs) So, yeah, but, uh, but she may have also gone over and above because in verse 18, there's this phrase here that says she, she gives him, uh, she covers him with a rug. He, he, she brings him inside. And covers him with a rug. Now, the reason why this is important, and I'm just going to read one verse out of this chapter. If you want more, uh, if you ever want to be disturbed by biblical imagery, go to this famous chapter, Ezekiel 16, and be sure and read the entire thing. And if it doesn't disturb you, you've got a stronger stomach than I do. Uh, But I'm just going to read verse 8. It says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Um, 
if you go through the rest of that chapter, um, to say it's sexual is like the understatement of the year. Right. Um, the idea of covering with a garment or a rug or the, the edge of a skirt, mm-hmm. um, this is a euphemism. It's the implication of a sexual act. Okay. So, um, so my question earlier about was there impropriety implied is absolutely. It, it is implied. Uh, there's still debate. Um, and we're going to clear up some of that debate, I think, a little bit when we get to the Song of Deborah. But here, definitely, there, the idea is planted in the mind of the reader. Uh, how accurate it is, that's going to be a good question. And it should be noted, too, that we have the same question when we have Ruth and Boaz. Right. So this, this euphemism, this polite way to say something naughty, it is consistent throughout the scripture. So in, in verse 19, she, she asked him for water. Uh, he asked her for water. And she gives him milk. And again, she covers him twice. Mm-hmm. So we have the second reference. Now, almost every commentator agrees that the idea of giving milk, like you, you mentioned, it, it's, you know, it, it's going to make you fall asleep. This is the reason why she does it. Um, quite possibly that this is, I, I don't see any reason to contradict that. But, you know, he's been out, he's been hot, running around. And we all know warm milk is exactly what you're going to get. In this day and age, warm milk is all you're going to get. Right. And so, yeah, well, and, and it, I do think I want to put this out there. This has little to do with what we're talking about, but I, <laughs> so you, they mentioned, they mentioned that she gets a skin of milk. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I thought was cool, uh, Mickey and I recently went to Eureka Springs uh-huh. and they have a little, uh, Bible museum there. And, um, so it, one of the things they have in there is they have, I took a picture of it. I'm not going to try to show it on the video here. I'll put it up. I'll remember to upload it. But they have an old uh, goat skin mm-hmm. for transporting wine. And so. Um, Pretty significant amount of. <laughs> so, well, the thing is, you know, you think of a goat skin. A lot of us have probably seen those flasks, the, like the little flagons. Like that's what mm-hmm. we're maybe made out of like a, a bladder or something. But this one is actually, is actually made out of a goat skin the like entire goat the, yeah and it's pretty cool like they have the the bottom legs are tied and sewn together and then the front legs were actually tied together and used as a handle, handle. Mm-hmm. and so it was, I, I thought that was pretty cool um that they were clever enough to to put that all together and use that kind of design and and, and using that the form mm-hmm. of the creature as it already existed to make something to carry liquid with it and of so. course i got to see it so it is a pretty cool design and it, it it is another one of those things it's kind of almost disturbing in the fact that you can still recognize what it was right but at the same time it looks highly functional and, and, and I, I guess that stuff i don't i don't think of it as disturbing because i think i guess because we grew up on the farm, farm i don't think about <laughs> stuff like that yeah i've been learning how to try to be more sensitive try being the operative word um so but yeah so she she brings in the skin which from what you showed me, this would have been a significant amount of warm milk. He probably guzzled it down. I mean, th- this guy has been running across the hills in the desert. Th- this is n- not an easy feat. And also, not only would milk put you to sleep, but if the word cover there is a euphemism, and it's been used twice. Mm-hmm. A man's going to sleep soundly after that. That's just biology. Yeah, fair enough. So. um now, ask your parents if yeah. you don't know. <laughs> right. Uh, if we have to explain it to you, you're not old enough. Uh, so verse 20, uh, he instructs her. He says, you know, go stand at the door. If somebody uh, comes by and ask, is there a man in here? Tell them no. So he is counting on the customs of the day that mm-hmm. everybody else is going to respect the fact that a woman has the right to the privacy in her own tent. And he, he's, he's counting on that to be his defense. You want to talk about hiding behind the skirts of a woman. Mm-hmm. It's not Barack. It, it, it's Cicero. Oh, it's definitely, yeah, definitely <laughs> Cicero. I mean, I, I didn't have any question about that. I mean, the whole thing about Barack, I, I wasn't sure about, um, you know, I just kind of assumed the original reading mm-hmm. or the more traditional reading. But right. I, but the Cicero, I had no doubt that he was, you know, oh, just, yeah. <laughs> just camping out, waiting for trouble to blow by. and. Yeah. Well, what, and what's so funny here is, is the fact that 
he just violated every custom he expected to save him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, how how like corrupt people to think that the rules apply to everybody but you. And, but this is also our our third implication that there was something sexual going on. OK, because he tells her if someone asks if there's a man in your tent, well, who's going to be asking if there's a man in her tent? It's probably going to be her husband. Right. You know, not is Sisera in your tent. Yeah, because if it's if it's Barack and anyone else, they're going to be asking for Sisera. Did you or, you know? Yeah. Or, I mean, that's assuming they that they know she knows who Sisera is, I guess. But, you know, they may just be. Or a soldier, a, yeah. a warrior, someone from battle. There's so many other ways. But if you've been in the tent doing things that you don't want somebody else to know about, you got to remember tent walls are not very thick and they're not very soundproof. So, right. uh, you know, he, he sounds like he's worried about being caught, not just as a warrior running from the battle, but actually dealing in those improprieties that we alluded to. Right. Now, Block sees this as Cicero trying to take back power and trying to regain control of the situation. Because up to this point, JL has been, come inside, you want water? No, you need milk. Mm -hmm. She's doing the covering. She's the active participant here. And so um, how true that is, I, I can see something in that. Because he is a soldier, he is a general, he, he's used to being in charge. Right. And um, to have power taken away from him, both in the defeat in the battle, but also now uh, to have to be kind of mothered and nurtured and protected by this woman. Mm-hmm. He, I, I could see him wanting to reassert his manhood here. Okay. Uh, but, you know, a little psychologizing of the, of the text. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure how far I follow that, but whatever. <laughs> well, you know, so verse 21, it, it's very specific that she takes the tent peg and she takes a hammer. Now, these are part of the home. And we need to remember this because this is going to become very important. She takes a tent peg and a, and a hammer. I'm just going to read it. But JL, the wife of Heber, takes a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. While he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. So mm-hmm. not just mostly dead, he's completely dead. Now, contrast this with the description of the battle. There, there's so much detail of what happens in the tent. Mm-hmm. In the battle, there's nothing. God wins. Yay. I mean, right. that's, that's about all we have. But, but this underscores that the important moment here, it's not the battle. We know God's going to win the battle. That, that's never in question. Sure. But this is the question, this, because this is the sign that Deborah is God's true prophet and judge. Gotcha. Okay. So we need all this detail because we want to give Deborah the credit for who she is. And this is the most important aspect of the narrative. And we see that just from the sheer weight of the number of verses and words used to describe this. And so when Barack arrives, once again, JL goes back out to meet him. Mm-hmm. And she says, come, I'll show you the man you're seeking. So she knows. I mean, she doesn't know just who Sisera is. She, she- knows who Barack is. Mm-hmm. There's no real reason for this. We, we have no account other than maybe that Barack being a warrior, mm-hmm. maybe he had some dealings with Heber too, or other Canaanites or it's Canaanites. Po- it's possible. I mean, but if, if this was going on close enough to her house that this battle is going on and she can, you know, surely you're going to have enough difference in the way that the, the Canaanites dress and the way the Israelites dress that she would be like, oh yeah, okay. There's something that sets them apart. Now, how big that difference is, we're still, that's still kind of in debate because we know that the Canaanites and the Israelites kind of absorbed into each other's culture for so long. Right. And the idea that JL, what I love about this, okay, you're seeing she is not a woman who's content to keep her head down and uh, just, you know, stick to her cross stitch. She, she's got her eyes and ears open. She is. What, what right does she have to violate this treaty that her husband made with Heber? 
Mm-hmm. She, she is taking matters into her own hands, literally and figuratively. And she has violated every custom of the woman. And this is the important part of the story is she is not what anyone expects. Right. And she's really not even what, what um, Barack would have expected. Because when, when Deborah made that proclamation, Cicero is going to be given over into the hands of a woman. As a reader, I think you, you expect it to be Deborah. Mm-hmm. You expect her to be the one wielding the sword or the knife or whatever is used to destroy Cicero. And it's not. It's not only a woman, but it's also an outsider. So we have this continuing theme of you know, Othniel uh, being the outsider, of Shamgar being the outsider. And now we have Deborah, uh, I mean, JL being the outsider. Mm-hmm. Not only is God using outsiders to oppress the Israelites during this time as a form of discipline, the means of salvation are having to come through outsiders. Hmm. And there's no way Deborah could have foreseen this unless she was a prophet of God. Right. And it, it's, it's just, it's amazing to me that this is the way it all unfolds. And now the other big thing is that we have to look at the themes here. What's JL using to, to accomplish her means? She, she's using her tent, the home. Now we know that tents are, they're associated with women. This right. is, this is the domain of the woman. Um, she is going to use not just her home as a place to, to hide Cicero, the home itself actually becomes the weapon of, its dis- of his destruction. Mm-hmm. The, the tent peg that would have held her home up becomes the element of his demise. Mm. Milk, very much a mothering kind of uh, symbolism there. Women give milk to sustain life, not to take life. And this is, this is a total abuse or perversion of what milk was meant for. And the fact that she's turning it around on him, her body, even her body is possibly being used to further his demise, to lead him further uh, from safety. Hmm. And so she takes all of these elements, these traditional elements of feminism, uh, of femininity, and she twists them. And so they become weapons in her hand. Now, here, here's where it gets really... Now, I... <laughs> Before we go any farther, I don't know if this is where you're going. Is there any kind of echo here of Gilgamesh and Echidnu? Um, tell me where you're going with okay, this. Okay, so you the domestic the domesticating factors are what destroys the warrior. Is there some kind of archetypal um significance here? Of of the you know because we say oftentimes that the women were the ones who are responsible for society mm-hmm. you know without that men would just be running around hunting <laughs> killing things killing things all the time <laughs> and so we have these these images these uh, tools of domestication and then you have this warrior person and he's taken down the warrior is killed by the the trappings of domesticity. So um, that, that was, I, the, I, I'm curious, is that where you're going? There, there is an element of that because I'm actually going to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more focused because honestly, JL becomes the embodiment of the fear of all of Canaan. And the fear of all of Canaan is that a Sarte or a Noth who was the goddess of love and fertility that they worshipped with these uh, sexual rituals mm-hmm. that she at any time could turn and show that other side of her, which is the bloody side of her that kills her enemies and decorates her body with their severed heads and limbs. And the mother becomes the killer. Hmm. And so she, she really does. She becomes this embodiment of, of what, all of society was terrified of. And this is a, a direct counterpart because remember when we started with Barack, Barack is lightning. Who controls the, the lightning? Uh, Baal controls the lightning. Asarte and Anath, these are consorts of Baal. Mm-hmm. So we have the masculine and feminine Canaanite gods or the, the methodologies and the sure. weapons of the Canaanite gods 
now they're being turned to become the tools and implements through which God is going to establish his reign and rule. Hmm. And it becomes a slap in the face of all the gods of Canaan because of who, who they represent and what the Canaanites would have seen when they looked at these characters of Barak and Jael. Interesting. It, it's, that's, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's really mind-blowing. I mean, because I was just thinking of from an, ar- from an archetypical, uh, archetypal standpoint of, of this domestication, the subduing of, of the land for Israel is actually, you know, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. With, with, with that, where we're, we're getting rid of the need for the, you know, we're becoming the agrarians as opposed to the warriors. Yeah. We're no longer the nomads. Mm -hmm. We, we aren't worried about people coming and invading us every five minutes and we can establish cities and towns. But, but what you're, but what you're saying is God's taking beyond just the 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 masculine versus feminine aspect he's taking the masculine deity and the masculine and then, and then the feminine deity and, and and using them to destroy both yeah yeah it, it really it becomes this this demonstration of god's ability to turn everything on its head mm-hmm. and, and make it serve him and this is that's the beauty of it and he's taking these unlikely characters i mean we dismiss barack straight out of hand whenever he's dealing with Deborah, it's like, oh, he's not really worth anything. He's not much of a leader. Mm-hmm. But then we we dismiss JL right out of hand because she's a woman. And God says, I can do anything with anybody. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. is going to serve my purpose. And that's that's the point because when we wrap this up, the the final verse of this chapter, um, well it helps if I'm in the right book. Um Judges says, four. And the and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin and the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Yeah. That's what I got here. I, actually, ver- back up to verse 23. Okay. Uh, so on the day uh, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So on that day, God subdued, sorry, <laughs> Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Okay. So, king of Canaan. Yes. A few times. Three times in there. And, and it's redirecting us that this is not a story about Barak and Deborah and Jael and Sisera. This is about God conquering Canaan mm-hmm. for his purposes. And it, it really is. It's directing us back to the fact all of this was God's intent. This was God's plan. And this is how God chose to manifest himself in this moment. Mm-hmm. And the battle was not among these people, but it was this king. And the got to remember who is the king. The king's the representative of another God. Mm-hmm. And so the battle really is not against flesh and blood. It really is against powers and principalities mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and all of these things. And when we read the narrative, we see the tangible manifestation. We see the people, you know, doing their stuff and we can get caught up in that. When we get over to the song of Deborah, then we're going to start to really have it brought out what the spiritual elements of this battle are, which is fitting mm-hmm. because she's a prophet. And yeah. so a prophet's going to see behind the scenes. They're going to understand that this is not just a physical battle. It is a spiritual battle. It's a cosmic battle. Right. And so she's going to reveal to the people what's happening, and she's going to do it in poetry. And we know poetry, that's the language of the prophets over and over again. When the prophets speak on behalf of God, so many times it is in that poetic voice. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's reason to believe that we can trust the song as true and valid because the sign she gave Barak did come to pass. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what this chapter is setting up so that we can hear the real story. Gotcha. And the real story is the song. So the, the, yeah, so the establishment, we have the sign to establish that mm-hmm. what she says prophetically in her song is also valid. It's, yes. That's what you're saying. Exactly. And, and it becomes very powerful that way. And the fact that we can see her connected to Samuel and to Moses, now we can't just dismiss her as, oh, this is a woman that, that God just used because there's nobody else around. And she, she did a good enough job. She, she didn't just do a good enough job. She did an excellent job. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to quit reading her story in isolation 
uh, both from the book of Judges, but also from the greater narrative of the Bible as a whole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and whenever you, again, pulling in that divine counsel worldview, mm-hmm. pulling in this idea that this is about driving out other gods. Precisely. And, and, and reaffirming that Yahweh is unlike any of the other gods. And he and has that, control over them. And that he can and will destroy them. Yes. And so, yeah, it, it really does make a lot more sense when you throw that in there. And again, and, you know, you know, we get into this whole bit, well, is it literally true? I think if the Bible's in there, it's probably, there's some truth to it. Right. But even if it's not literally true. Mm-hmm. The writer had that in his mind. Well, and when you look at inspired work, and, and we've talked about this even on the commentarians, uh, not to go back to Gattaca too much, <laughs> but we, we talk about um, the helix staircase, you know, that symbolism that's in there and Jude Law's characters climb up the, the staircase and, and mm-hmm. the symbolism with that. Did the writer consciously and the set designer consciously decide, hey, I'm going to put this in here to symbolize this? Or as an inspired work, are there elements that came into play that are kind of, they're in the subconscious brewing, right? but they still come out? Well, you know, well, you know, the, the staircase was obviously a deliberate choice, mm-hmm. right? So then you talked about the wind took it. The wind took away the flaws. The spirit mm-hmm. took away the flaws. You know, uh, that idea, if you, if you don't know what we're talking about, hit up commentarians. Uh, right. The Gattaca episode. It was, it's one of my favorites so far. Um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So um, be sure to check that out. But um, so, yeah, that, yeah, there's so much here. So yeah. what, what else do we have? Is well, there... and, and OK, so just real quick word on, on inspiration. When you look at inspiration, inspir- inspired work has these ambiguities mm-hmm. and these little hints at other things because inspired work is never complete in and of itself. It only becomes complete when it's being interacted with, when the audience begins to to see themselves within it mm-hmm. and begin to participate. Only then is it complete. And that goes for art, movies, that goes for the prophetic word. You know, a prophetic word without an audience, without a recipient, it, it, it's just posturing. It's posing. It, 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 there's, there's no life there. Right. But the minute it, it engages and interacts with that human being, now the world changes, mm-hmm. reality shifts. And so this is the reason why it's so important that, that we recognize Deborah's position. She is in that position of someone who creates reality. That's what prophets do. So, yeah, that's kind of, kind of where I wound up with it. And I actually was more excited after doing some research than even before we got into this. So Yeah, like it, it's one of those that... I was excited to to get into this story because I, I know there was a lot to it. I didn't realize how much there is to it. <laughs> and of course, I'm I'm sure most of the Bible's like that for me. And um, it's like that for me. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm excited to get uh, you know to get farther into this. Uh, next week we're gonna pick up with the Psalm, yeah. the Song of Deborah. Mm-hmm. And so who knows how long that's gonna take? We thought <laughs> we thought we were gonna go through the narrative in one episode. Yeah. And then. That didn't happen, but I'm glad it didn't because I think we got a, a chance to really explore some ideas and, and throw some and throw some stuff out there that's even unexplored for for other people. If you have anything, hey, if y'all have anything on, uh, if there's a Tamar Rahab connection, um, if you know of anything on that, let us know. I, that that just I want to know if there is. <laughs> right. So other than that, uh, did you have anything? Or we? I think we're good. Okay. I well, that wraps us up for this week as far as uh, subject matter. Um, Thank you so much for for hanging out with us. Be sure to join us next week um, as we dive into the, the song of Deborah and and really start to take that apart. Let's uh, uh, you know. In the meantime, hit us up uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Raven Creek SC or RavenCreekSC.com, uh, where you can find uh, companion posts, resources for this material, and also our other shows. Check out the commentarians. Go hit up that Gattaca episode if you get a chance. <laughs> it's so good. Um, or check out uh, our new show, uh, not our new show, but the newest show to the Raven Creek family, uh, Changed My Mind with Luke Carrington. Um, again, he's award, an award-winning author, uh, put together a, a podcast, and we have the honor of hosting him. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. And uh, in the meantime, I guess we'll see you on the internet. We appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.